Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Krulak community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brewcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So we're bringing you a special uh, recorded episode today here, um, kind of as an update on on a, on a previous episode. Uh, over a month ago, it seems like it's sort of time has gone pretty quickly, but back in the end of September, we had talked to uh, correspondent for Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Liberty, Ms. Golnaz Esfandiari, and uh, to get her take on the unfolding protests that were starting to come out of Iran. And this was in response to the, the death of an Iranian woman who had been taken by security services and in uh, in the time they had her in the time she got to a hospital had died of what appeared to be pretty brutal um, physical trauma from being beaten for not wearing her hijab properly while she was visiting Tehran. Um, so here we are at the beginning of November and the the protests are still ongoing. Um, they've the the government in Tehran has sort of clamped down on on a lot of the the sort of video information that was available initially but we do know that um, there have been regular updates about hotspots for where the protests are, and they've uh, they certainly seem to have an energy that's continuing them, and um, they're they're spreading into many places across the country. So that's kind of the one thing we're going to get an update on here. And the second thing we're going to look at is in the in the context of all in the all of this, there's been a rise in Islamic State activity in parts of Iran around as well. Um, yeah, and whether this represents a uh, an attempted expansion into sort of the the chaos caused by the protests, or whether there's something else at play, is what we're going to take a look at here. So, to help us unpack all of this stuff and and get us up to speed on all all of these um, remarkable developments in Iran and their implications, we're pleased to welcome the entire Middle East Studies team here at Marine Corps University and the Krulak Center to talk us through it. We have Dr. Amin Tarzi, who's director of Middle East Studies, and we have Dr. Christopher Anzalone who's research assistant professor for Middle East studies as well. Um, so gentlemen, thank you both for taking the time for a little impromptu chat here. And uh, we're, we're gonna start taking a look at the protests, sort of how they've developed since we last looked at this. Uh, Dr. Tarzi taking that one initially. So uh, good morning, Dr. Tarzi, and take it away. Uh, good morning, uh, Major Brown. Good morning, all of our listeners and, and uh, followers of Krulak Center's uh, broadcast. Uh, I have actually uh, just this weekend, uh, so two days ago, came from the region. I was in Bahrain. So with information coming in uh, scantly, whether it's in the United States or across the, the Gulf, uh, as of uh, 4 to 5 November, just this weekend, we have uh, information from, from various sources, uh, mainly Iranians who are reaching out with pictures of protests in uh, many parts of the of the country. Uh, I would name Tehran the capital, Mashhad, which is very important because it's, it's the second largest city, but also it is the most important city uh, for for the Shia clergy and the Shiism because it is it is the you know where is the burial place of one of the the twelve imams in Iran, the only one in Iran. Karaj, Zahedan, Ahvaz, Isfahan, Iraq, Bandar Langa, Kerman Shah, Boucher, Islamabad, Harb, and to 
places like that. So the reason when you look at that, it's not only concentrated in the main cities where the normal protest against the Islamic Republic regime or system occurs. When it reaches Mashhad, which is all the way close to the Afghan and Turkmen border in the northeastern part of Iran, that means that this is pervasive, it's societal, and it has a broad base. It's not just the students, uh, it is the people as a whole. This is the key first, that it is it is broad-based. It is, yes, it is very much youth-driven. Uh, initially, it was predominantly female-driven, male, younger people, younger males supporting the effort. Now, I think we can say that it is a, uh, a gender equal, meaning both male and female are there. Still, the older people are not in there. Uh, it is a youth movement. These are the children of this revolution. Pretty much, I could say this is, of course, ballpark, that more than 80% of the people on the street were born after the revolution, most of them born in the last 20 years. So they are very young. Uh, nobody from pre-revolution days is there. So that's, that's, that's how you look at it demographically. Who's not in there? And one reason that while this is pervasive, it has lasted much longer than anybody had anticipated. People who are not in this are right now, first of all, what the Iranians call bazaris or the merchant class. There has been certain numbers of, of protests by the merchant class, certain areas, especially in, in, in Ahvaz and where they, uh, they were protests in the oil industry, but it is, it is spotty. No revolution in Iran has been successful, including the last major revolution which brought this regime, 78-79, uh, without the participation of the Bazaris or the merchant class. That's one. Two, the military, the Iran's regular military, which they call Al-Tesh, by, by far the largest part of the military, has stayed in the sideline. They have not made, made major statements. Uh, yes, they are not politically as as important as the IRGC, the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps, or their cronies, the Besiege, which is doing a lot of the damage to the people right now on the streets. But they have, they're more from the people. They're less attached to the regime or the system. They represent more Iran. They are very quiet. Again, when you look at what toppled the Shah, the military changed sides. So those are the two elements that I think will be a, a major game changer. That has not happened yet. The, the last point I will talk about this generalization part is that the protests are still absolutely leaderless. There's nobody, whether inside Iran or even outside of Iran, that we can point to and say this individual as the leader of this movement, or even quasi-leader. So there's no such thing. That is, of course, good and bad. It's good because we don't have a bad leader. It's bad because we may have a bad leader. It's a, it's a void. Most likely it will be filled. And this is another crucial aspect of this, this, this movement, this revolution, as some people are calling it. It is a revolution, in my view. Whether or not it changes the regime, it's already changed the regime. And that will be my last point. I, I believe that the regime or the system, in, in Persian, when I use the word regime, I want to make sure this is actually what they call it. In, 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 in Farsi, in Persian, it's called Nizam, which literally means system. So they use protection of the Nizam of the system. The system has fundamentally lost almost every legitimacy with the mass of Iranian people. And this is key. It's no longer about the system, the, the regime changing its attitude, 
for example, right now, you see a lot of places in Iran, uh, especially in Tehran and, and, and Isfahan, where female women are walking without any hijab, with hair, and the police just passes them by. And members of the regime are saying, okay, now we can, okay, we can have sisters without hijab. So that seems to be one thing they're giving up on, which what used to be until, as you said, Major Brown, uh, Miss Amini was actually killed because her hair showed. So suddenly they are giving up on that. They think I think that's one of the concessions I think they're making. I don't think it's about that anymore. The, sh the, the, the slogan is about life and freedom. It's Zad Zindagi Azadi, woman, freedom, uh, and, 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 and uh, life. So the freedom in life is not just freedom from restrictions of a hair covering, but rather what this regime represents. And that's another key. I think the legitimacy is changing. And, and, and to that, the Majlis, which is the Iranian parliament, just, just two days, three days ago, 227 members out of a 290 member body has recommended that all those who have been arrested, and there are the thousands, should be executed. Again, I repeat, 227 out of 290 have recommended that they should be executed, which means what? That the system, those who are elected even, through checks and balances of the system, are so alienated from their own people that there is no cohesion anymore. I will leave it at that in the, in the, in the, in the kind of a broader look, and then we can go down in your questions and in the discussion we have on the specifics. But that's, that's my kind of 30,000-foot uh, look at this thing. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Dr. Tarzian. Yeah, I will. We'll we'll go back to sort of the, the longer term ramifications of this year um, after we get Dr. Anzalone to take a look at the Islamic State. I did have one, just one thing I wanted to ask before we shift over to Islamic State is the you know mentioning that the um, you know the IRGC and the Bazij have been sort of the the lead in terms of repression against this, which is sort of I think the standard operating procedure. Um, yeah, we're now on. I, I don't know if we're on week seven or week eight of how these protests are, but you know, the fact that the protests have can like I, I, I don't remember a continuing protest this long in Iran from all the times it's happened over the last 10, 20 years. So are, are the IRGC and the, the Bazij, have they lost the capability to tamp down on this? Um, are they are they restraining themselves? And, and, and that seems unusual if they are, because previously they've had no problem whatsoever just using brutality. Okay, that's, a, that's, a, that's a key question you're asking. Uh, the, the, the last, only other protest that could be and then linked and, and, and its uh, effects, you could look back at the 2009, what is called the uh, Green Movement. Uh, it lasted a little longer uh, and it was pervasive, but this, that was, again, the key difference was it was leadered. The leaders are still under house arrest. Musavi was the main leader, Khatami and so on. Uh, secondly, it was not about changing the regime. It was calling the, the, the main uh slogan was uh where is my vote so it was it was problematic within the system the system was stealing votes which they did it wasn't calling for this you know there were some who were calling magba dictator dictator meaning comedy the besiege came very very hard on them the irgc did too but the besiege i mean the mass incarcerations rapes beatings shootings on the street they saw that as a threat from within the system by the so more moderate, if you would, or I would say more pragmatic members of the of the system. And they, they lashed out very hard. 
a message to them that, look, we cannot tolerate that. If we chose a president for you, you have to accept it. I think that was the message, and it was driven with extreme violence, and violence inside in the cameras, which they didn't stop, by the way. And my personal view is they actually wanted those scenes to be broadcast so people would get the fear of, look, we they mean business. Your question, why is that? It's not incapability. They are very brutal. They are showing it right now. They were just, I just, like this morning, I was preparing for this. I saw a, a person burn himself in this car, and then he's coming out. They dose him, some people, and the Basich comes in. And while the man is, I mean, in pain, he's burned. They are like five or six besieges. Besieges don't wear usually uniforms, so they are in plain clothes. And, and stomping on his face and his body. And it's all recorded. Recordings are very hard. Those people who do that, they do it, and then they say, look, I won't be caught, so then they get it out. There is a lot of brutality, but it's not in a system that they, they haven't executed anybody. But, you know, I think they are kind of waiting to see what happens. If they, they, they believe, this is speculation on my side at this point, I don't think it's incapability. I think they know that if they pushed hard, they may have another 78, 79 in their hand. And I think they are coming to a cusp of, this is why they are looking away from, from the hijab. I mean, I'm talking about lots of women without any hijab running around. And now they're showing in the Iranian media, the government media, uh, I don't share those online because I just don't, but they're showing... Our, because they, they this last weekend was also the anniversary of the takeover of the United States Embassy, which is a big holiday for them, uh, in commemoration and almost affirmation of this regime. And and that there were women without hijab saying death to America. And they said our hijabless sisters calling death to America. So so I think they're trying to see which with what what they can give on the social stat social level to preserve the system. They, we, we haven't seen the teeth yet. And, and that's, the, that's the scary part. I don't think they have got all, and they're letting the besiege takeover, which they don't carry. They have sidearms and they have batons, but they don't have the big weapons. We haven't seen uh, major weapons on the street as we saw in 2009. Yeah, great. Thanks for the, uh, the clarification. Like I said, and we'll go back to sort of the longer term ramifications here a little bit later on. All right, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. And um, one of the other things that sort of um, popped up in the headlines from around recently was a, uh, I, I don't know if, if uh, brazen or ambitious or, uh, or you know, what, what adjective you want to use, but there was a recent attack um, claimed by the Islamic State on a, uh, on a facility, I believe, in eastern Iran. And there were, it's for unprecedented or, or at least very unusual for a number of reasons. So, uh, we're going to turn it over now to Dr. Christopher Anzalone to uh, to kind of explore that piece there and sort of what it means, you know. So, Dr. Anzalone, um, welcome to you as well. Um, we're going to take a look at so where did this happen? When did this happen? Um, what do we know about it? And um, what are sort of what are the immediate ramifications of it? And in, in you know, well, well, all of this other turmoil is going on inside of Iran. So yes, thank you. Um, first, good morning to everyone, to all the listeners, and to my colleagues, to Dr. Tarzi, to yourself, thank you for um, having me on the broadcast. It's it's a pleasure. It's been a while, but it's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure to join everyone again. So, at the end of last month, there was a, a shooting at a Shiite Muslim shrine in the city of Shiraz, and it was it followed in a not a pattern, but there were two other previous 
attacks, brazen, uh, I'll adopt your word, attacks that Islamic State claims, one in June of 2017, uh, sort of a double attack, sort of more or less simultaneous inside the Iranian parliament building, and then um, sort of at or near the shrine of Ayatollah Khomeini in Tehran. And then in September of 2018, they claimed an attack on a, a, a Basij and an IRGC a military parade in the city of Ahvaz. Um, so the attacks that they have claimed that IS has claimed have been somewhat sporadic and they've been carried out, uh, if we believe what, what they say about them, by very small cells. We're talking five people or less. So in 2017, Islamic State released uh, a fairly lengthy video or one of its media departments uh, in, in Diyala, which actually is just across the border in Iraq, uh, released a film featuring all Iranians, uh, supposedly. They seem mostly to have been minorities, so Kurds, Baluch, and, and some Ahvazi Arabs, Iranian Arabs. Um, basically, sort of boilerplate Islamic State propaganda calling for attacks inside of Iran. One of the big uh, clubs that IS has used against Al-Qaeda is that, you know, Al-Qaeda, you always talk about defending the Sunnis, but you don't actually do anything. And, and, and actually, in the past, you've prevented us from carrying out attacks in Iran because, you know, some senior Al-Qaeda leaders like Saif al-Adil um, seem to be under, are under house arrest in Iran. So you've come to some deal with the, with the uh, polytheist Shiites. And so we're the ones who actually go and, and defend the Sunnis and attack Shiites and, and kill them to defend Islam. And so this latest attack, there's there's a debate. So, for example, um, just talking to colleagues, Iranian to friends and colleagues, that the perpetrator was a, a member. Was there's a picture I've seen, Dr. Tarzi? Perhaps you've seen it as well, of the the murderer, the killer, the gunman, basically supposedly standing next, or someone who looks like him, standing next to the supreme leader Ali Khamenei um, during congregational prayers. Um, what sort of throws a wrench into that is just like the 2017 and 2018 attacks is Islamic State released not a lot, but some media of, for example, of, of, the, of the gunmen pledging allegiance to the caliph of Islamic State, um, which they did in 2017 and 2018. And actually in 2017, they released footage, uh, perhaps from a GoPro or some sort of similar camera a sports camera of the attackers inside the parliament building. And in the 2018 attack, as the attackers, the gunmen are going to that military parade, they released footage of them talking in their car about what they're going to do. Um, interestingly, one of them uh, has a, an IRGC hat. I mean, again, what, what, and it seems to be in a, a, a uniform of some sort. So this is, you know, does it Islamic State does not seem to have a very expansive cap capability in Iran, but certainly it's very opportunistic. This is something that they've done in Europe. So um, the sort of sporadic lone wolf or, or supposed lone wolf attacks um, since 2014, 2015 in Europe follow a similar pattern. An individual or a small group carry out some sort of attack strategically, not that important. And then somehow they connect with Islamic State media. They release a short 30 second, one minute, a couple minute film as has happened with uh, cells in Azerbaijan and sort of other places. So it seems to be, it certainly fits within the Islamic State pattern, the Islamic State slogan still, even though they control no territory in the Levant and Iraq, 
is Bakia Watatamadat, so remaining and expanding, which is a lie, of course, because they they're not remaining. Well, I mean, they remain, but they don't govern anything. But it fits within that pattern of we're still here and we we still can do stuff. Okay, it's not that important, but that's the important thing is we're still here. Uh, Major Brown, if I may add uh, to this incident in Shah Jarrah and in, in Mashhad, uh, there is a different version which has just come out. <clears throat> that well, first of all, many of the Iranians still believe that this was done by the government itself. This is very important. That this was a distraction. That the Islamic State is, as it's used, that it's used the name of you know all these propaganda uh, to cover a governmental incident and to change the narrative, if you would, that Iran is under attack, Shias are under attack, especially Shah Jarrah, which is beautiful. Actually, I've been there when I used to go to Iran. Uh, a shrine and, and innocent people just praying uh, and visiting a shrine killed. So a lot of people was doing that. And secondly, when something like a, a, an attack on Iran happened, the people of Iran rallied behind the government. That never happened. There was not a single major anything, even orchestrated to people kind of calling, you know, you know, cursing or something on Islamic State or whoever. The majority of the people on the street believe this was done by the government. Now, there's a new issue that came out. A, a, a person that is in Iran was indicated that that's just last night that this is most likely the work of the Taliban, not an Afghan Taliban, but versions of the Taliban associated with Jundullah. Jundullah is a, a, a group which uh, supports either independence or self-determination for the province of Sistan and Baluchistan, which is in southwestern Iran. Uh, sorry, southeastern Iran. <clears throat> and what happened there on October the 3rd this year, which they call the Black Friday, uh, 19 Baluchis were killed by the Iranians. The Baluchis have been in an insurrection, and the government says the reason they used live bullets rather than rubber bullets in other parts of Iran was not because they were Baluchis, but they were insurrectionists, they were secessionists. But 19 people were killed while praying. And now the no new narrative as of last night is in the Iranian media that Shah Jarrah was a direct revenge of what happened in the mosque in Zahedan on 3rd of October. So. It's an ongoing process. The, the thing that is important is inclusion of Islamic State, as, as my colleague said, that allows the government to so, say that they're under attack. They believe, the government of Iran believes Islamic State is supported by the United States, supported by Saudi Arabia. And that inclusion means that this is an international attempt by their enemies, i.e. U.S. and Saudis, to inflict pain on Iran in order to get support within. There's also this internal dimension that Iran could show that there is those who want to divide Iran. Whether they are Kurds, let us not forget the two places that are the most damaged in the past two week, few weeks is Kurdistan in the northwest and Baluchistan in the southeast. And Ms. Amini was a Kurd herself. So that also has a, they're both Sunni too. Well, the Kurds are not as much, but the Baluchis are almost predominantly Sunni. So there is a, a dimension that we have to keep in mind that this Islamic State issue plays a major role, uh, but it is mostly a major role for the government. Whether they are or not, again, this is where we have Dr. Anzalone to determine whether or not this is them, and maybe we will never know or know it years from now. Thank you. Yeah. 
I would just add sort of one thing to sort of bolster what um, uh, Dr. Tarzi was saying. So some of the Baluch, the Iranian Baluch separatist groups um, like Jaysh al-Adil and um, there's another one, Ansar al-Furqan have been very active in talking about what happened, what, what Dr. Tarzi was uh, saying about responding to attacks by the regime on in Sistan, Baluchistan, basically that there needs to be some kind of response. The one thing about the there's been a debate also about the, the the media outlet, the Islamic State sort of affiliated or associated media outlet that released this very short pledge of allegiance. And it's very short. We're talking, I think, under certainly under two minutes. And it's just the guy, the gunman, giving his pledge to the the head of Islamic State. It is released. It's, it's usually the outlet that releases these lone wolf kind of videos, you know, to sort of prove in quotation marks. And then there's been sort of discussion that like Omar Mateen, for example, the Orlando, the Pulse nightclub, this was his his uh, little clip was released by the same outlet. Then there, you know, with that and other cases, how operationally involved is sort of Islamic State core? And it seems in a lot of these attacks, not very much, meaning they sort of say these people were inspired by us. They like us, but but the central command doesn't have command and control and they don't want command and control. They kind of say, look, this is our message to you. Go and run with it and do something, but we're not going to tell you what to do. So again, the, the fact that there have only been three major attacks that Islamic State itself has claimed, and then you compare that to what, for example, the, uh, the, the regime has said about how many people that it's arrested. I think scores of people since 2015, 2016, allegedly because they have ties to Islamic State. And, and you'll see that the, the government's has the regime has really played this up, um, whereas Islamic State itself has only claimed three attacks since 2017. Great. Yeah, thank you both, gentlemen, for, um, for you know, unwinding that as best we can. Um, and, you know, Dr. Tarzi, to your point about, you know, trying to <clears throat> find an external enemy, uh, it sort of gave me some echoes of when, you know, over the last eight months or so, you know, at least Russian state media has been saying, you know, we're not fighting Ukraine, we're fighting NATO, right? Because that's 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 a bigger problem. That's a, you know, a, a clear, more sort of understandable threat that you can put yourself against. Um, but I guess, Dr. Anzal, back to you. Um, is to sort of to that that question of, you know, who who really did it? Is is there any any sort of evidence that that's available right now? It's sort of indicates more strongly one way or the other that, you know, this was a opportunistic Islamic State attack, you know, or something done, um, you know, uh, some sort of false flag done by the regime to sort of detract attention from its protest. Um, but if it's the former, you know, an opportunistic sort of lone wolf operation, it, can we, is this indicative um, of a uh, sort of degradation of internal security measures in Iran if they've you know, it, they have not been able to stamp this down because their security forces are are busy elsewhere. You know, stamping down their own people in their own cities. Could we? Is it possible that if if this, uh, we might see more opportunistic attacks just because of that sort of that security framework has now started to have some gaps because of the protests. So over, I mean, in general, I think that Islamic State that it's that is its modus operandi, which is to take advantage of uh, when there are what it perceives as security sort of lapses or vacuum. So that's always what it has tried to do in multiple countries, not just Iran. Um, I, I defer to Dr. Tarzi about the internal security situation. But the fact that, you know, two of the attacks were carried out 
uh, again before this in 2017 i mean inside the parliament building itself these are you know how by a team i think it was five gunmen between that attack and the attack uh, around the khomeini shrine um, but islamic state has always wanted to take advantage of sort of sort of pre-existing or, or continuing environments of of unrest it's what it did in syria for example in the north particularly so when rebel syrian rebel groups were fighting the the syrian government the syrian regime islamic state didn't really fight the regime that much uh, in 2013, 2014, it focused on taking over northern Syria. Um, and then sort of ironically, ultimately, it, sh it shot itself in the foot because then it alienated sort of every other party in Syria. So party, you know, groups that, that hated each other, the regime, the rebel groups, the Kurds, um, which then, of course, was, were, you know, that is what undid it in the end. But it sort of, it certainly fits within the IS pattern. Great, thank you. Yeah, and, and yeah, the uh, the Islamic State did unite people, just not quite in the way that they really wanted to. Um, okay, so now I want to I want to go back to sort of the the, the, the longer term questions that, that we had here earlier on, which is what are you know going on six seven weeks of the protests with no sort of no end in sight, um, as well as a possibly deteriorating security environment where you may have you know more opportunistic windows for. Um, for non-state actors, terrorist groups, or or lone wolf-inspired folks, to you know to cause you know further damage and carry out high-profile attacks like this, what do what do you both gentlemen sort of see unfolding over the next few months? And I think Dr. Tarzi will go back to you in terms of the the longer-term sort of questions about the protest base. You know, we talked about the military has not joined in yet. Do you think that that's something that's going to happen? And then an, another larger question is that we sort of, you sort of touched on is. The, this is a very different flavor going on, right? This is not, uh, um, this is not, you know, my, you know, I want my vote to count. This is, I'm done with this, like burn the system down kind of thing, you know, with, with yelling out death to the dictator on a regular basis. I don't, I don't see how you go back from that in the near future. So that being the case, is there, is there a way forward for the regime to still retain its power without, you know, just completely crushing all the people who live under it with a, you know, a, a much more larger, more brutal security state? Like, is there a measure of coexistence for the current power structure? Or is it going to have to go, you know, to complete and utter brutality and repression? Or is their power structure going to go away? Uh, that's, a, that's a long question, but it's important. Uh, also, one other thing about the, the Baluchi aspect, uh, just on this 4th of November, six, another 16 people were killed in Baluchistan this last Friday. So let's keep that, that aspect of the within Islamic State or regime using this as a uh, outlet, and I'll, I'll segue to that, to, to that this was a direct revenge operation based on what happened on that Black Friday, as the Baluchis call it, on, on 3 October, 19 confirmed that. Uh, and then 16 were killed just now. So there is a, a that that issue that insurrection in the, in the, in the south uh, southeast is still there, which is gets to that point. I think you're absolutely right in, in my view that the the system, the regime, has lost its credibility and, and it's it's the way this whole basic way of ruling it's done. Going back to it, whether they allow the hijab or a little bit other leeways maybe more freedom of expression, uh, maybe, you know, I don't think that's that's going to do it anymore. It, it That was 2009, it's over. 
Now, what, 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 where are we going to go from there? I think the, the system, the regime is trying to, this is why people blame their own country that they did the, what happened in Shah Chirag, in Mashhad, the, the shrine that we're talking about, that they're desperate. So to ward off this, whether it is that he, Iran, we are under attack by foreigners or by people within our own borders who want to separate Iran, these are all trying to gather support for Iranians are a very nationalistic people. This country has existed more than 2,000, almost 3,000 years. It's one of the oldest countries in the, in, 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 you go to the Bible, there's a, there's a Persia. So that, to go to and hark back that we are under attack, Iran is under attack, it's not about our regime, it's to galvanize the people. That's one thing. The second thing they're doing, and you hear that from the merchant class, for example, we don't we want to become a Syria. This is where, again, what Dr. Anzalon saw this, this, okay, look, you know, Islamic State is here now. And that means we can become a lawless country. You want to be like Syria. They actually say that. Do you really want to be like Syria? Meaning an absolute lawless country where you have fiefdoms of brutality. What I think is if the regime persists in keeping its power to your specifically to your answer, it is going to become a Syria, not because of the, 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 the damages in Syria. Iran has much more central control over a system, but I think it will become a full-fledged dictatorship. Uh, whether there will be Hamadei on top or not, it could be as a symbolic, the supreme leader being supreme in every, you know, by name only, the IRGC and elements within it, with, I'm not saying it's just, IRGC is no longer a, a military organization. This is not new. This has happening, been happening from very, very early on, but it solidified itself as a socioeconomic power. They are, they are in everything. They built metro stations. They, they run ports. So for them to release this, it's not just them going to back to their homes and, and you know, retiring. They'll be dead. And most likely, other countries will not accept them. So for them, this is a survival of a large group of people, which with we have attachment of, of certain members of the of the uh, merchant class. That's why they're not escaping. And they're Iranians, older Iranians. That's why they're not going on the street, that they are fearful. They say, okay, at least this system, we have a television, we have food, we have a country that is, is, is uh, safe. We don't want to become an Assyria. We don't want to become an Afghanistan, a lawless, all that. So that's the fear they're instilling on people. On the, what, one other thing that the regime is trying to do is to internationalize this. And this is something that, that is, is, is vibrating right now in the region. They keep on saying the Americans are doing all of this, the Saudis and Germans. These are the three countries that right now, and the Saudi part is important because I don't think they want to pick up fight with the United States. Uh, at, at this point, uh, but they may pick a fight with a country such as Saudi Arabia. If they do that, that would be a much, much more pronounced diversion of attention. Again, hopeful, hoping that that would hark the, the Iranians towards nationalism and the total dislike. There's always been this rivalry dislike between Saudis and the Iranians across the, the Gulf, the North and South. So. I think this game is not finished, and and to your question, I don't think this regime can restore its legitimacy based on what it had started. It had some legitimacy, elections and all that, even though it was controlled 
it's it's all over. If they survive, which would most likely I think they will, it will be as a very centralized military without the name of military dictatorship. That's what you're going to get. And it will become more dangerous. In my view, at least, of course, one thing we haven't discussed, I don't know if you will discuss that, will become the uh, the issue of, of, of nuclear weapons. But I'll, I'll, I'll not say that. I'll leave it to you to see where you want to lead this. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, I'm not sure that's a an area we, we've got time to go into right now. Um, although um, maybe we need to do like a, an, an Uber nuke episode between Russia and Iran because we've, you've all and I, we've sort of touched on it, you know, periodically, but we haven't done like sort of a deep focus on it. And I think the last time we talked about, you know, Russian nuclear weapons was a broadcast, I don't know, several months ago, you know, you know, two or three months into it, looking at, at their, uh, you know, sort of old doctrinal capabilities, but that was before all the discussions were happening, you know, will they, won't they, um, kind of thing in Ukraine. So maybe, maybe we'll do nukes another day. Yeah, well, let me know if you do it. I, I That's what I used to do. And also now Iran is offering Russia, not offering them. Now they at least are admitting that they're giving Russia drones and, and perhaps maybe even uh, ballistic missiles. So Iran is now not only at the receiver now they're a, a exporter of of weapon system which is also a their player in, in, in the broader international scene beyond the capabilities of any country in that part of the world where actually they're sending weapons to a country like russia effectively indeed and, and as you said that uh, occurred to me maybe we do need to do a, a joint episode with you all looking at that particular pipeline of, of weapon exportation and support um, one last thing before I, I go to another question for Dr. Anzalone is the military aspect of this. What do you, th what do you think it's, it, what motivations, I guess, you know, do the, the conventional military have in terms of which side they fall down on? Um, you know, cause on, on the, on the one hand, I could see that, you know, they're, uh, the the regime sort of considering the threats that are around it as well as internal threats would want to keep the military happy to keep them keep them on their side on the other hand you know the i would think like most people in the conventional military right like you've got family and friends who are among the people you know getting their heads stove stoven in by the bazis during the protest so i'm sure that they're they know or are related to people who are undergoing the protest you know, just I guess your hot take, which which way do you see the military potentially falling down or coming down? Look, that is, you know, we always use the million dollar question. This is the million two two hundred million Toman question, because <clears throat> and you are absolutely right. This is what a lot of people on the street are hoping that the military, because they're more from the people uh, and they're not very privileged and they don't have their lives attached to this. They don't see their heads hanging if this regime falls. For those reasons that they will eventually say enough is enough. That's another reason, I think, that the system has not executed anybody, where the parliament, almost the vast majority, wants them all executed. And you were talking about thousands. They're saying it's 1,200, but they're way more than that. Is that they don't want to alienate a major segment, like the military or the, or the merchants. Yes, there are some merchants who are directly attached to the IRGC, which is a merchant class now, in a sense. But there are also the bazaars, the literally bazaars or, or the markets in Iran, which, which play a major role. Uh, so how they're sitting at the fence right now. They have, we haven't heard from them. Uh, and, and I try, I look at a lot of Iranian chatter. 
you don't see them much. You see from every side. Uh, my personal view is that in order to galvanize the military, the military structure, you know, I was in it, you were in it, leadership is always important. Either somebody comes out from it, that's the most likely, either from them or from even lower ranks of the IRGC, who thinks that the survival will be a total change, or somebody, a leader has to come out. And this is the key. Look, 78, 79, the revolution was successful because a leader, a very charismatic leader, sitting in Paris at the time, south of Paris, took to the waves by cassette tapes and it had the pulpit. Those on the street were not Islamists or mullahs. They were mostly communists. It was the two-day party and then the Iranian masses against the Shah. But then you had a charismatic one leader. Everybody galvanized around it, including the communists. It was a very weird combination. We don't have that. And the military at that point switched because it had somebody who came with an authority. Also, it came with not only authority, it came with a just cause. And the injustice on the ground was, was brought up. We don't have that. And there is a fear in my, my mind is that either a fake leader, fake meaning what? What is a fake leader? A leader, leader that is actually pushed in by the system emerges if this thing continues long, or a leader that is actually more destructive than, than so the, uh, right now we are we are really on a not only the regime itself is in a, in a very precarious position those of us who want iran to be a, a normal country a country that contributes historically it has always done that we have to watch what's going on because it's a very very it's a tender box without we don't even know where the where the where, where the pressure points are and 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 how to push them so i think i think all those are speculations without the military or pass thereof in the merchant class i would say a, a, a this revolution cannot be successful that will change the, the, the tide I, then brutality doesn't matter because then the system collapses itself so far this markets are all open people can go and buy yes inflation is there iranian money is almost worthless with all of that this is a country that knows how to survive but if that trend changes and they feel that they have protection, they have no protection. These young people go out there knowing you say that they're tearing down posters of Khamenei or even Khomeini. That's tantamount to death. That they're doing it in front of cameras, throwing Molotov cocktails on, on posters of Khomeini. They even the toppling statues of, of Soleimani. I mean, if you want, I'll show you some incredible footage. This is Soleimani, who was like kind of their hero of the heroes, in debt to Soleimani. They even debt calling, uh, you know, uh, bad names to his mother, which is dead. So there is a, 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 a very big anger, but this how this anger is channeled and how this anger is protected is the key. And this is where sociologists may study this in the law, you know, depending on how it works out, is, is how you channel this kind of a, a very open, defiance without a single leader not we don't even know local leaders which is good because they're gonna they're, those are mostly will be captured so so that I, i'm not giving you a direct answer but i think without their participation the militaries or at least quasi support uh the people have no no recourse to defend themselves you cannot defend against rubber bullets or real bullets. They're using both or batons on their heads or whatever else they do to them. So at the end of the day, uh, you have to have some kind of a protection against brutality.
and and the military wouldn't do that. So I I, I again I, I'm not answering you directly because I just don't know. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and I, I was not, you know, completely expecting a a you know one hundred percent rock solid answer. Just kind of wanted your hot take on it, but you know that makes sense that um, at at some point um, human flesh can only take so much if you don't have anything to uh, to back you up. You know, a bunch of battalions gives you a lot of, you know, it, it gives you motivation as well as you know material support. You know, those battalions you're against you that becomes a, an almost impossible. And, and I think the legitimacy, the people, uh, there was a soccer tournament, football soccer tournament, a beach soccer. The Iranians won. And this was in Dubai, just, just again, two days ago. Uh, I was that part of the world at that time. And, and, and when they win the cup, they're all, you think that they're all in, in, in mourning. They literally take the face. And apparently they are, they're being arrested upon return now. Why they didn't celebrate. So these are all protests. You know, you win a tournament in a foreign country, they're wearing Iran, you know, Iran, you know, Iranian national so uh, football uh, soccer, and you should see their faces. And this for Iran is important that everywhere that their image is, now everybody's looking at their, their upcoming uh, matches, which would actually, as, as, as would it have it, they're playing both the, England and the United States, England and the United States. Uh, how they will react on that, because they're going to be under the cameras of the world. I think these people, my view is that these these football or soccer players are, are warned that they should behave or else, because this is, you can't hide, you know, a beach football soccer, you can hide. This you can't hide. This is the cameras of the world is on top of it. So for these are very important aspects for the system to say, look, we are legitimate. And, and, and the people say, look, you don't represent us. And, and how, who gives in here? But we also also be ready that maybe from the military, either the regular military or even the IRGC, somebody pops up and says, "Hey, I take the lead." Are we we the world outside ready for something like that? And these are things that I think we, you know, those of us involved in war gamings and analyses, look at those scenarios. What if somebody shows up and does that? Are we gonna we not the United States? It's not for us to do something that's Iran's internal affairs but how the receptivity of that would be by the international community by the regional countries those are things that we need to look at right now because I, I it could be a very quick change and because the system is so uh stretched uh it could lead to something very good or it could lead to something incredibly bad and given iran's position given iran's access to weapons and technology given iran's relationship with russia uh this is this is this is a very important country in that part of the world and and i would say even in the global scale to go just haywire yeah no uh it, it's always occupied a an extremely sort of you know vital fulcrum of a position you know, both geographically as well as in terms of its resources and its influence. So um, it uh, it would be a, a, a really sort of frightening world to think about if you had both potentially, you know, Russia and Iran starting to sort of come apart at, this, at the seams and have to deal with that whole, that whole situation all at once. Um, so, uh, but also I'll be watching the upcoming, you know, the football tournament more closely because, I mean, it was like, historically, it's also a fact that, Sometimes those major sporting events where all the cameras are have been opportunities, you know, for protest or to, or to send a message, you know, one kind of message or the other. So um, something to something to watch outside of the pitch, if you will. 
Um, so Dr. Angela, I want to go back to you with our, our remaining time here and, and go back to look at the sort of the longer term um, implications of the Islamic State attack. You know, I sort of talked about it before, but do you think that um, due to the internal turmoil conditions, is this, do we maybe look for more of these targets of opportunity to pop up? But also, as, as, um, as we were talking here just now, you know, Iran has its own proxies and its own unconventional forces that uh, that can do things outside of its borders. And I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on potentially as a, a measure to get attention elsewhere, you know, could we see some of their proxies start to become more active in other areas of the Middle East to sort of to just get the spotlight off of what's going on inside their own country and get it to shine somewhere else? So, I mean, the short answer is is yes. I mean, their their go-to recently has been in the last few years, and sort of like after Soleimani was killed, was to use Iraqi proxy groups. But the the difference is that the situation in Iraq is obviously it's it's changed quite a bit, and so some of these groups are facing their own sort of domestic internal pressures. Um, the, the Houthi relationship in Yemen, and then of course there's Hezbollah in in. Um, in Lebanon, but the dynamics in, in all of these places, uh, except for Yemen, has sort of significantly changed, I think, over the last several years. So whether, and some of these proxy or allied groups also have their own sort of dynamics that they're dealing with. Lebanon, of course, has the economic collapse. Um, and so, but I, so I would think it's, I think it's more likely in Iraq. And so what's happened in Iraq over the last sort of year is that instead of using established groups, sometimes you'll find this new group pops up, right? Sort of like what, and some name, you know, they name themselves, you know, the brigades of whatever the heck, you know, the brigade of Imam Ali, something, something, something. Uh, and then you don't hear from them again, right? So it seems to be a way that instead of using groups that we know, everyone knows, the world knows, we, the U.S. know, Qatar, Hezbollah, the Hezbollah brigades, or the Badr organization, or, you know, one of these Iraqi groups that everybody knows is, is, very, very close to the IRGC specifically. Instead, we'll have some group that nobody's ever heard of, you know, and they will fire some rockets at uh, a base where U.S. forces are, uh, perhaps not with the intention of killing anyone, but sending a message. And then also, okay, it's this group that nobody's ever heard of. You know, it's a new group, quote unquote, in, you know, inverted quotation marks, commas, uh, a new group. And so, you know, we can't, be blamed for that. And Dr. Tarzi can talk about the, the hidden hand and all of sort of this practice. But I think it is uh, certainly possible and likely. But I think that that because of the situation that it's going to be something like where they can have at least, well, we can debate how plausible it is, but some sort of deniability, which it's, oh, look, it's not even one of the groups that, that we admit having relationships with, that it's this new group who knows who they are, you know. Great. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, we've uh, come up on about, I think, the hour that we wanted to do for this. And uh, I, I think we all got to shift over to other things. But happy to let either of you gentlemen any last thoughts or, or things to look for that you'd like to share before we close out. Uh, first, I, I thank you for continuing this process. And, and, and uh, this is uh, this has been a, a very looking at it from the time you started. And now we are past 100. Uh, so I want to say in the public domain, thank you for all your efforts. And, and it is important to to have these debates and, and for our own students and for those who follow the Krulak Center uh, to think, because I think what you just heard from Dr. Anzalone, I, I, you know, there is, it seems that in, in 
you know, coming from the CENCOM AOR uh, just this weekend, uh, there is a sense in there that America, United States is not looking at that part of the world. We are looking at that part of the world. I say that very, very clearly. Uh, and we are not done with there, nor is that area done with, with, with turmoil. And that's the sad point. And, and uh, we just have to keep our eyes in, in mind, not just, we can't afford as, as the United States, as Krulak Center, to be focused, unifocused somewhere. I think this is important. And I, I think the broadcasts have shown that that breadth and depth that we have to, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the burdens of being a major power. Uh, yes, there's major power competition and we didn't even touch. And hopefully some other time, you know, you're going to talk about the nuclear aspect of Iran and the Russian-Iranian relationship, which is major power competition, disruption, whatever. There's also, of course, China, which is watching, uh, everybody else in that part of the world is watching what that dynamic would look like. Uh, and, 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 and this is an ongoing issue for us security wise for our own country, but also educationally for the broader base. So I, I think, I think, uh, uh, you know, this shows that we cannot relax when I say relax with kind of a, and, and say, okay, it's all about this part of the world or that part of the world or this issue. And and for that, I, I said, I, I thank you uh, for keeping this broad-based and multi-dimensional and looking at, at uh, various aspects of making us think better. At the end of the day, PME is about making sure that we can be creatively thinking beyond one issue and broadly. So uh, I just say thank you. Well, much appreciated, Dr. Tarzi. And uh, I, I think doing a, a unique episode, whether it's a rabbit hole or a broadcast with um, the two of you and Dr. Weber specifically on Russia-Iranian relationship is something we should probably queue up here in the near future. Because, you know, from all the reporting that, you know, Iran is a weapon exporter and supplier now is going to, you know, probably increase over time since Russia's running out of its own weapons. It's going to all of its neighbors um, to include, I think, a, a train of munitions that let, you know, North Korea said it wasn't going to send any, but there's uh, apparently a train that that left with some of those. So that that'll be something to explore. And the Iranians are apparently. I heard this from some colleague out there that they are training uh, the proxies that that Dr. Angelo was talking about. Uh, mainly Afghans and some some others uh, are being trained to go and fight in in Ukraine now. Uh, so there's a lot of the borders. Again, we work on a state conception still. You know, the Westphalian state sovereignty. I know we have understood that those are getting weaker. And then, the, you know, we have the non-states, so-called non-states. Uh, but now it's, it's, it's a whole, this dimension is getting even more and more uh, uh, problematic, meaning we have to think more. That, you know, Afghans who are refugees there or Pakistanis who, for whatever reason, go to Iran to become soldiers, ostensibly to defend Shia shrines in some place, end up fighting Ukraine. We need to think about that. I mean, they, they were initially there to go, at least by name, that they were defending the Shia shrines in Iraq and elsewhere in Syria. Well, I don't know if there's a Shia shrine. Not Ranzolo, are there Shia shrines in Ukraine that I don't know? I don't think so, no. But, how do you do these things? So this is, this is it makes our job much more uh, harder, uh, but also, we, you know, we have to just look at them. And if we don't know it, we accept that we have a lack of understanding. And that's better than saying, oh, well, this is why it is. And then try to reach out and try to 
whether internally or externally, try to get a, a, a foothold on that. I think this Russia-Iran issue is, is uh, both countries being, one really losing legitimacy, the other one is, has its, its own issues in Russia's case. Uh, and both have egos that are pretty large, uh, uh, could could be a very explosive, and I don't want to use that, but I you know literally and figuratively explosive situation that we need to be aware of. But thank you. We should not make the morning of our listeners even more dreadful. <laughs> well, at least I know on the Marine Corps side, we'll all be we'll have a day of escapism coming up this week with the Marine Corps right. birthday. So, um, you know, at least one day off from those troubles. Um, Dr. Anzalone, any final thoughts from you before we wrap no, up? No, just uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's great that we have, you know, talking about Russia, China, Iran, all of these, you know, these areas of concern outside of strictly CENCOM or Indopaycom, what have you. It's great that uh, under the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University has access to folks like you who can talk to all of those things. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look for, for future opportunities, especially since we've now got, you know, our China SME, Dan Rice, on board here. You know, I think getting you all, you all, the two of you and him and you all together in a room to sort of look at all these connections is going to be something we'll do with some frequency in the coming weeks and months. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, both of you, thank you very much for your time this morning and to our listeners, as always, thank you for joining us for this special episode focused on Iran. Um, we'll probably have more updates just like this because uh, as Dr. Dr. Tarzi, Dr. Angelo mentioned, something has got to shift, right? This is not just going to, there's no sort of status quo ante um, whatever comes down the road is going to look differently. And as, as those, um, those frameworks start to emerge, we'll be looking at those two. Also, to our audience point out, we're going to have another down the rabbit hole on the Russia-Ukraine here with Dr. Yuval Weber, probably near the end of this week. And uh, our, uh, we have a, a unique broadcast coming up here, not next or this week, but the week after, where we're going to be taking a, a very interesting look at the nexus between artificial intelligence, analytics, and language. And this is specifically in the context of looking at national security strategy and how AI can sort of digest and, uh, and identify some of the, maybe some of the unconscious trends in the language that we use there. Um, Alana Wicker is gonna be joining us for that one. She, uh, she's one of our sort of the folks I like to go VFR direct to on social media to just you know kind of pull them into our web and help them provide our expertise. So that's going to be a very unique episode looking at something we haven't really talked about before. And uh, that'll be coming up here. We'll be posting that shortly. And as always, if you like the show or don't like the show, every episode we've got a link to our survey where we're trying to get a better sense of how we're doing on the materials that we offer at the Krulak Center. So feel free, take a few moments, go through the survey. It's just a quick Google Doc, less than five minutes of your time. And, you know, and give us five star ratings or like us on YouTube as well. Um, it helps us reach a greater audience and help help the knowledge of these gentlemen and our our network of experts reach a wider audience and be more impactful. So, gentlemen, again, thank you both. Uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Enjoy the week. And we'll get you on here again soon. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.